you're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Be with you. My name is Reed. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn Montrose. It's my joy to welcome you all to our gathering this morning as we continue in Advent looking at the prophecies of the Old Testament that relate to Jesus and his birth. Um, this morning we continue and we look at Zephaniah, as you just heard. But before I get into that, I um, just want to do two things. One, remind you of how to connect. Cole kind of outlined that at the very beginning of the gathering, but we would love to connect with you. It's a great time to connect, especially as we think about the new year and connecting with a community of faith and, um, and particularly connecting with Sojourn Montrose. So we'd love to have a conversation with you in the hallway to my right, your left, about a parish that might work for your schedule or be near where you currently live um, that we can connect you with. And then uh, two things. One, next Sunday we have one gathering only at 9 a.m. right here. So there won't be a 10.30 a.m. gathering, but there will be a 9 a.m. gathering. And the same is true on New Year's Eve, the 31st. So just be aware of those changes coming up. And then we'll be right back on schedule January 7th. Um. Well, cool. So like, as I kind of said at the beginning, we continue our series looking at these Advent prophecies. These are Old Testament writings. The Old Testament just means everything that precedes the birth of Christ. So all of those writings that, um, that talk about the old people of God, that, that ancient people of God, the Israelites, and lead up to the birth of Christ, which then marks the New Testament in the Bible. And um, a lot of these, well, all of the Old Testament prophecies predate the birth of Christ, but many by hundreds of years. Zephaniah um, is argued to be written a little over 600 years before Jesus is born, um, which historically tells us a few things. One, it tells us that the nation of Israel is divided between the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah, or two kingdoms, and Israel is ruled over in exile. So Israel does not exist. They are a people in exile, ruled over by Babylon uh, captivity. But the, the kingdom of Judah still exists at this point. It's just very weak and small, but it still has this mighty capital in Jerusalem, which is known as the people of God's capital. It's where the temple is, right? Um, So this is the context of Zephaniah's writing and the remnant of the people of God, the remaining people of God who are not ruled over as captives or exiles is in the kingdom of Judah in Jerusalem. And we know by the time Jesus is born, the Roman Empire has conquered this area and all of these places are gone and there's just Rome. And so um, we know that Judah does not stand, Jerusalem does not stand either, both fall to Roman captivity between Zephaniah's writing and the writing of, or and the birth of, of Christ. Um, so I, I say all this to say this. When Zephaniah uses terms like Israel, Judah, Jerusalem, he's talking about the people of God, right? The people of God. Um, so let's pray together and we'll look at Zephaniah this morning and see what this has to do with Christmas. Well, Lord, we, um, we take a moment before you to slow down, to, to stop, to, to allow our heartbeat to, to literally slow down, um, to beat a little slower as we quiet our mind and let the cares, anxieties, fears, um, whatever might be trying to make its way into your thought this morning. Let's let those things just kind of fade away for a moment, hopefully for the next 
30 minutes or so or, or the remainder of our morning together, but maybe beyond that. But I pray that right now, Lord, you would quiet us and not, not that we don't speak with our mouths, but quiet our thoughts, quiet our souls that are restless. And as we open your word together, those ancient words that men and women have recited just like this for thousands of years, that men and women have for thousands of years remembered the birth of Christ, the Messiah, who we find ourselves as wonderfully insignificant in the cosmic scheme of things, and yet wonderfully chosen, wonderfully exalted, wonderfully loved by the God of the universe who knows the hairs on our heads. And as these truths settle into our souls this morning, I pray that we would, um, that we would hear your word and leave all the more comforted by your grace and encouraged to labor for your kingdom, not, not in a way that causes exhaustion, but in a way that spreads rest to the ends of the earth. Lord, we need you to do this in us and through us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay, so our passage this morning, as you heard Christy read, um, comes at the end of a three-chapter, really short prophetic writing called Zephaniah. Um, And I think it's appropriate to spend a little bit of time at the beginning of the sermon talking about the preceding chapters because um, the passage that we're looking at this morning begins this way. It's chapter 3, verse 14. It says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. And so the question I have is, for what reason should the people of Israel worship? For what reason are these people being instructed by the prophet Zephaniah to sing and rejoice and worship Yahweh, to worship God? And so if you turn to Zephaniah 1, um, there's a very different uh, temperature, I'll say, of the writing. Um, The picture is quite bleak, right? Verse 1 tells you the genealogy of Zephaniah. It tells you the genealogy of this prophet And then verse 2 is quite literally the beginning of the prophecy. So verse 2 begins this way. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Merry Christmas. How do we get from this beginning of a prophecy, from, from utter and complete destruction, and then Two chapters later, we get to, therefore, sing aloud, O people of Israel. How do we, how do we make this transition? Um, and the answer to this, the answer to how this transition gets made is what the prophecy in Zephaniah is all about. Zephaniah is going to talk, again, a lot about Jerusalem, Judah, and Israel, which means he's talking to the people of God. And chapter 1 goes on to focus specifically on the failures of God's people and how for these failures, their injustice, their pagan worship, their idolatry, their adultery, their murder, their greed, their selfishness. For these things, God is going to pour out his wrath in the form of a fire that judges them to death. That's what Zephaniah chapter 1 is about, right? Chapter 1 verse 12 says that God will seek out the unjust in Jerusalem like like one with a torch, like one with a flashlight. He will look in the crevices of Jerusalem seeking out injustice, seeking out the unrighteous in order to pour out his wrath of fire on them in judgment. It's like, this is not a cheery start to the book. They call the day, uh, the prophet calls this day a day of ruin, a day of devastation. 
And then at the end of the chapter, verse 18 of of chapter 1, God says this, In the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed, and the earth will come to a sudden and full end. Again, very bleak for Christmas time. And then continuing in chapter 2, God takes his focus away from his people in Judah and Jerusalem and points it at the surrounding nations. And surprisingly, it's not much different, right? God looks at the surrounding nations and addresses specifically each nation that surrounds Judah and says, you too will be consumed in my wrath for your injustice, your oppression, your sin, your selfishness, your greed, your idolatry. You will be judged by my wrath. But chapter 2 gives us the first sliver of hope And it's for the nations, not for Judah. He says this, God says this, um, seek the Lord, seek his righteousness and humility. And if you do this, if you seek the Lord, then they are told, these nations are told, they too might be hidden from God's wrath. Which is, it's interesting, right? He's not talking to God's people, he's talking to the surrounding nations. But God says, seek me in my righteousness, seek me, and you might be spared. But aside from this hair's worth of hope, the nations are told that they will be burned in wrath that is poured out because of their sin. And chapter 3 begins, so we focused on God's people, we focused on the nations that surround, and then chapter 3 begins by going back to God's people, specifically in Jerusalem, and talking about the levels of corruption in the authority systems of Jerusalem. That's the beginning of chapter 3. And verse 8 of chapter 3 ends again with this promise that for Jew and Gentile alike, all of God's people being Jewish, Gentiles being everybody who's not Jewish, all of God's, all the nations around God's people, um, for Jew and Gentile alike, his wrath will be poured out like fire. It's called his burning anger and the fire of his jealousy, which will consume the earth. If that is where Zephaniah ended, there would be nothing to sing about for the people of Israel. But that is not where this ends. Chapter 3, verse 9, we see a turn. It's called the turn of the prophecy. It's where something happens, something breaks forth. And what breaks forth in this prophecy is God's mercy as he reestablishes what his burning fire will be used for, for his people. This is what it says. I'm just going to read it, verse 9 through 13. It says this, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst the proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord." Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Okay, so what is going on here, right? Like, immediately preceding verse 9 is this promise of utter and complete destruction because the whole earth, Jew and Gentile alike, has been found unrighteous. They've been found unjust. So God has said, yeah, I will... In my burning anger, I will destroy all of the earth to the utter end completely. But then there's this group that is not burnt. There's this, there's this remnant that is established 
a people both humble and lowly who have called upon the name of the Lord. They've sought refuge in the name of the Lord. And they've been spared. They've not been destroyed. Here's what's, and really this leads to, this is the reason that Zephaniah gives that the people should worship God in verse 14. This is the re- he says, some will be spared. This is why we sing. Here's what's going on. The prophecy is this. Everyone is sinful. Everyone is selfish. God's people are the same as the nations that surround them. They're all equally corrupt. They're unjust. They're unrighteous. They're greedy. They're sinful to their core. And yet, for God's people, for any who would fall upon his name, for any who would seek his refuge in his grace, they are not burned up. But there is fire. Instead, the fire of wrath that God uses to destroy sin. For those who call upon his name, he does not destroy them. He purifies them. Verse 9 through 13 indicate that they are purified by the fire, not destroyed by the fire. For those who seek the Lord's salvation, who know they are sinful, who know they are greedy and selfish and utterly worthy of destruction because of their sin, for those who call upon the Lord in mercy uh, and, and name his mercy and invite him to be their refuge, they will be not only saved, but purified by the fire, not destroyed by the judgment fire. Their speech becomes pure, Zephaniah tells us. They bring offerings. They're not put to shame because the pride and the sinful and the arrogant natures are removed from them by that purifying fire. And who remains? Humble and lowly men and women who know they need God's salvation and therefore they know they need God's purification. They become a people humble and and lowly and lovely because they deserve the wrath and judgment of fire, and yet the Lord did not burn them. He used his fire to purify them. Verse 11 says, They now do no injustice. They speak no lies. There is not a deceitful tongue in their mouth. In fact, they lay down and graze like sheep in a pasture who have no fear. Think about what, what does it take for a sheep to lay down and graze in a pasture. It means there's no threat. Sheep are skittish and fearful, but when there's no threat of destruction, they lie down. Let's read again. Now That brings us to um, our beautiful text this morning. And, and the text is beautiful on its own, right? You all heard it at the very beginning of the gathering. Like This is a beautiful text. But I would argue that it's more beautiful in light of the chasm of despair that precedes it. Because right? if if we don't recognize that we're a people in need of saving, then, then salvation isn't beautiful to us. However, if we're a people that are, that are utterly aware of the devastation that the sin of our lives and our natures has wrought, not only to us, but to those around us, if we're aware of what we utterly deserve, which is God's fire and wrath poured out on us, then verse 14 the invitation to sin, to sing and explode in praise. It's all the more sweet, right? It's all the more beautiful. So let's read verses uh, 14 through 20 in light of this reality. It says this, Therefore, because you deserve wrath and you've been spared, and not only spared but purified, therefore sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it will be said to Jerusalem, by God, fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. 
He will exult over you with loud singing. And then God starts speaking. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with your oppressors. I will save the lame. I will gather the outcast. I will change your shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. At that time, I will gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among the peoples of earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, declares the Lord. And that is how the prophecy ends. So the prophecy, to recap, goes forth and says, Sin deserves wrath, but for those from any nation who would call upon the name of the Lord, they will not be consumed in wrath and judgment. Instead, they will be preserved and purified by that same fire that burns sin because of God's mercy. Therefore, chapter 3, verse 14 invites us, worship him because God will save. God will be in your midst. Don't have any fear. It's a beautiful prophecy. I think what's notably absent from this prophecy is how. How will God save them? How will God purify them? How will God be in their midst? And this is why the prophecy in Zephaniah is an Advent prophecy. The how, the answer to the how is this. Jesus. Jesus. And I'll explain this. In Luke's gospel, um, Mary, the virgin, is told by an angel that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, will be born through her and come into earth through her. And so she goes and, and runs to her friend Elizabeth, and the baby, and Elizabeth's pregnant too, and the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaps for joy when Mary enters the room. Is it because of Mary? No, it's because in Mary's uterus, in utero, is Jesus. So the baby in Elizabeth leaps for joy as the first, really one of the first, to worship the Christ, the Savior, God in her midst, or in his midst. Um, and it's at that moment that Mary sings these words. It says this, verse 46 of Luke. Uh, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Father, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him, who call on him from every generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, God's people. He has helped them Remember his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So Mary is, is referencing Zephaniah heavily here, right? His mercy is on those who fear him, who call upon his name. He has removed the proud and exalted the humble. He has saved the poor, the hungry, the lame, the outcast. He has remembered his people and he has sent them a king, a king to dwell in their midst, and so what Jesus goes on to do as he grows up and enters his ministry is he goes on to fulfill this prophecy. But here's, here's some key aspects of that fulfillment. Jesus lives a life of perfect obedience, 
none of the corruption that we find in Zephaniah, none of the selfishness or idolatry or pagan worship or deceit that is found in the mouths of the people, none of that applies to Christ. No, Jesus lives a life as fully God and fully man, free from sin. We know the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way we were because of his human nature. That means he faced the same temptations as you and I did, and yet he never succumbed to that temptation to have a deceitful tongue, to care about himself more than others. He, he, he was sinless. And yet, all that burning wrath that God talks about pouring out on sinful men and women is poured out on the sinless Savior, Jesus. All that burning wrath, the payment for sin is wrath and death, and destruction, and Jesus takes that wrath and death and destruction for those who call upon his name because they fear him as Lord and Savior. So Scripture calls this people a new preserved and purified people. The New Testament calls this the church. And more than that, it calls the church the bride of Christ. And the reason the church, we brothers and sisters who have called on the name of the Lord for preservation and purification, the reason we are called the bride of Christ is because we are being made pure, like a bride who would wear white on a wedding day for our Savior, King, Husband, Jesus. And so Jesus not only took what we deserved, He not only took that wrath and death and destruction that Zephaniah clearly communicates that we who are sinful deserve, he not only took those things, he also, when he died on on the third day, rose from the grave, therefore defeating sin and death and Satan, the one who really oppresses us and mocks us, Satan and death. And he ascended to a throne, we're told, from which he poured out his very Holy Spirit, his own spirit on those who follow him, on everybody who calls upon the name of the Lord, the Holy Spirit is given to dwell within them. In Acts, um, and really really continually throughout the Bible, when we, when we see the Holy Spirit appear, the Holy Spirit appears as if he's fire, right? In Acts, in the upper room, the apostles are praying, and the Holy Spirit descends as if a tongue is on fire in that instance. And the reason fire is associated with the Holy Spirit is not for those who fear Jesus, not because of wrath or destruction, but because the Holy Spirit is the agent of purification, or we call it sanctification, right? Jesus sends his Holy Spirit to purify us like fire does to gold, and that makes us more like Jesus. So the Christian life is marked by this, right? We, we put our trust in Christ. We call upon the name of the Lord in fear and reverence. We say, Jesus, we deserve death. We deserve wrath. We deserve destruction because we're sinful, and he saved, when you call upon his name, you are saved and preserved from wrath and made pure, as the song goes. We're sanctified into the image of Christ by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, Christ within us by his spirit. He makes us more like him. He makes us more forgiving and patient and lovely and less bitter and selfish and angry. Um, Quite interestingly, there's only one time where the Holy Spirit appears in the New Testament not like fire, and that's when the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a, like a dove. And why does Christ not appear like fire in that moment? It's because what sin is there to burn out of Christ? There is none. There is none. For us, we need the Holy Spirit to descend on us like fire because there's so much sin in me that has been burned out, 
and a ton remains. A ton remains. I see it every day, and every chance I get when I see it, I invite my brothers and sisters, you in the room, and myself to turn to the Lord and say, Lord, save me from myself. Burn the sin out of me that plagues me day after day after day. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians calls this process Christ making his home in our hearts, that Christ is actually and personally within us by his Holy Spirit. He's the king of our heart by his Holy Spirit, and he works to change us and works through us to change others. So when Zephaniah talks about judgment coming and wrath being poured out, and when he talks about this wrath of God, this fire of God being poured out, but his people being preserved in a way that doesn't lead to destruction, but instead leads to purification. In a major sense, the prophet Zephaniah and God through him is talking about sanctification, the preservation and purification of those who call on the name of the Lord for salvation. Zephaniah is talking about the sanctification journey that you and I are on, where the Spirit of God is making us more like Jesus. The king dwelled on earth. The king, Jesus, was in our midst. And the king, Jesus, reigns now on the throne of heaven, but by his spirit, he reigns in the hearts of his people. And the fruit of this is growth in purity, in, in becoming like him, right? By his power to burn away our sin, he makes us not only want to be, but actually become like him. So Advent is all about anticipation, right? We, we put ourselves in the place of those ancient Israelites in order to, in, to feel what they felt, to, to feel what it's like to anticipate and need and desire and hope for and pray for and yearn for a Savior to be born. So while Zephaniah received fulfillment in Christ, right, talking about wrath and purification and sanctification and the people who can sing because they've been spared, right? We can see all the ways that that has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ as his church today. So while that's been fulfilled in some ways, we also in the Advent season get to place ourselves in a new position of yearning. We yearn for the day where we are fully purified, fully made like Christ, fully with the King singing over us in our midst, right? In fact, the only book in the New Testament that directly quotes Zephaniah is Revelation. It's Revelation chapter 14. And in that chapter, um, John is getting a vision of Christ the Lamb, and his people are following him. And it says that his people have their foreheads stamped with the name of the Father. And verse 5 says this, that in these who have been redeemed by God and the Lamb, in their mouths was found no lie or deceit, for they are blameless. They're blameless. This people that is following Christ and the Lamb, this is us. This is the church. This is God's people who have called upon the saming name of Jesus, and therefore the Father's name is stamped on our foreheads. And that, what that tells us is that right now, as we await his second coming, we are in a process. We are in a process of having been saved and now being sanctified into the image of Christ. But there is a day coming. There's a day coming where he returns. And this process is finally and fully Realize there's a time where God in Christ will come with a burning fire again, and for those who are in him, that fire will not result in destruction. It will result in full purification. It will not hurt. It will not hurt. The results, Zephaniah tells us, of that day will also be singing. Right? The result will be 
singing and joy and worship and a festival and the real presence of the King, our Lord, the mighty one to save, will be in our midst, literally singing over the festival. And the author of Hebrews tells us this other thing, that Christ is singing over us right now. One of the things that Jesus does when the congregation worships, when the assembly gathers, is that he sings over us. The promises of Zephaniah are true today, but yet they will be more true when Christ returns. Think of it this way. The people of Israel had a sketch that pointed to Christ, and now we have Christ who is pointing to his full return. There's a day coming where all of these current realities will be fully realized fully crystallized, fully complete, fully real, fully physical, and perpetually true. So as we close this morning, I want us to look back at the passage that we've already read with the lens of this, we we call it kind of in the church world, already not yet, like that Christ has come, lived, died, risen, and ascended to the throne, which means already we are a people forgiven, already we are a people in process of purification, but not yet has it been fully realized, not yet has the plan of salvation been consummated, and yet for those in Christ we have no fear. For those in Christ we have rest, for those in Christ we have been saved. This is what, uh, for Christians in the room, these things are true for you, Right now, it says this, verse 14, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgment against you. He has cleared away your enemies. That means for those in Jesus in the room, for those who have called upon his name, there is no judgment against you. That's what the verse says. The judgments are removed from you. And there is a time coming where you will sin no more. Continuing, the king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. What evils do we fear? Satan and death, primarily, are the evils that I fear. And yet, I don't fear those things because I have the Holy Spirit of God within me. The king is in our midst. Verse 16, on that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak which is a way of saying, do not grow weary, church. He has saved us. He will return. We do not labor for the kingdom in vain. That means we work hard to bring people into the kingdom of God, but ultimately we don't do that to no end. So don't grow weary. Why? Verse 17, the Lord, your God, is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. Who saves? God saves. God saves. And here's what Christ does over you, continuing He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. So what is happening right now for Christians in the room is that Christ is rejoicing over you right now. He looks upon you with gladness. He is quieting you with his love. That's what we prayed at the beginning, right? That our souls would be quiet, that we'd feel the love of God in a way that becomes heavy. And quiets us. And while we're being quiet because of his love, not wrath poured on us, love poured on us that quiets us, what is Jesus doing? He's loudly singing over you. We could be quiet and let our loud Savior sing over us, exult over us. And yet, Christian in the room, know that there is a time coming where you and me will stand together at a festival and we'll see the physical God King Jesus singing over us together. 
I don't know if I will respond in singing like verse 14 says or if I'll just be quiet. Continuing, 18, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that, so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Um, is Christmas a season of suffering for you? Is it a season of mourning? You should know you're being prepared for the festival when he returns. Verse 19, behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors. I will save the lame. I will gather the outcast. I will change their shame into praise and renown over all the earth. So if you struggle with shame in this season, he has dealt with your oppression and will fully deal with your shame when he returns. Verse 20, at that time, I will bring you in. At that time, I will gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. So for those in Christ, he will gather us up. He will bring us in. He will restore our fortunes. He will make us his bride. So we are a people of hope. Not because things are perfect, not because we're sinless, not because we don't suffer, but because just like the Israelites, for those who call upon the name of the Lord, he has done it. It is finished. He will do it. It will be finished. There's a full final salvation that awaits, but for now we can look back and sing aloud because though we deserved wrath, though we deserved wrath because of our sin, a baby was born by a virgin in Bethlehem. The Savior and King, Son of Man, Son of God, firstborn of the dead, was born in Bethlehem. And the point of Zephaniah is that they and you and me don't deserve this child. We don't deserve this child. We don't deserve this King. We don't deserve this mercy. We don't deserve this preservation. We don't deserve salvation and purification and sanctification and consummation. We don't deserve these things, but our God is a God of mercy who is rejoicing over you with gladness, and you don't deserve it, quieting you by his love, although you're accusing yourself of being too sinful exulting over you with loud singing, although the thoughts in your mind might accuse you or tell you you're not worthy. Let his singing over you drown that sin out. Drown that junk out. God was born to live, die, and raise so that he could quiet you by his love. That's what Christmas and Zephaniah is about. Let's pray.